Please remain standing for our scripture reading this morning. Our passage is Galatians chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. can be found on page 973 in the Pew Bible in front of you. Galatians chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Hear the word of God. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness? Let's pray this morning. Father, we ask that you would speak through Chris, that you would use his words to help us to understand this text, that it would become alive to us, that we would learn, that we would grow, we'd be challenged, be equipped, we'd be sent out with the truth. Help us to sit under this truth this morning. We thank you for how powerful your word is. We ask that it would continue to just seep into our hearts. Speak, O Lord, and your servants listen. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning. I know we live in a softer, gentler world, and perhaps direct name-calling may seem a little insensitive to you. You may have heard the words at the beginning of our text, and you thought, wow, Paul, are you having a bad day? As a matter of fact, in today's world, if a preacher uh, were to put in writing things like, you foolish Colorado Springians, I don't know, that That seems like a mouthful. You'd probably end up in Christianity Today or some sort of blog piece somewhere, uh, you know, for a pastor, you know, being mean to his people or something along that lines. But in order to give us a sense of what Paul is saying here, I'm going to borrow from a couple of other translations to give us the full impact. J.B. Phillips, uh, in his uh, paraphrase of the scriptures in this part, he says you could... Interpret this, oh, you dear idiots of Galatia, who has cast a spell on you? I like that, you dear idiots. Or uh, Eugene Peterson, in the message, he writes, you crazy Galatians, did someone put a spell on you? Have you taken leave of your senses? Something crazy has happened, for it is obvious that you no longer have the crucified Jesus in clear focus in your lives. Now, I I like that these writers, as they are trying to bring the Scriptures alive, are trying to give language like someone might say today. Paul is clearly upset. He's expressing this directly to his reader, the people who are in the churches in Galatia. Why is he using such strong language? Why would he use words that could certainly be taken as insulting? Well, he's trying to get their attention. He's trying to enable them to see the seriousness of the situation, to see the peril that they're actually in in this moment, 
as they toy around with what he calls a gospel that is not really a gospel. In other words, gospel means good news, but the people in Galatia have decided there's another good news, which Paul says is very bad news for you. And so he uses this very strong, this very direct language to try to wake them up from their situation. And I want us to see here as we return to this beautiful letter that Paul has written to the Galatians, I want us to see three things just in these first few verses of chapter 3. One, I want us to see uh, that we are all prone to madness. Secondly, I want us to see that we are all susceptible to novelty. And thirdly, that we all tend toward an ignorance of history. And so first of all, I want us to see that it's not just the Galatians who might occasionally be foolish or, as Eugene Peterson said, a little crazy. We all have a little madness that we're prone to. And how is that? I want you to notice uh, here what Paul's main concern is. He says, who has bewitched you? Literally, it is who is casting an evil eye to you. Now, why is he using this language? Is he suggesting that perhaps there is some sorcerer or magician there in Galatia who has somehow created some magic spell over them? Most writers believe, no, while uh, spells and the like were a real thing in the first century, certainly in Galatia they were, uh, Paul is using this language simply to draw a picture for the Galatians and for us that it is almost as though a spell have been placed over you, right? Now, we use this language rather in good humor in rock and roll songs and all of that. If, if uh, we were to sing, you cast a spell on me, that simply means your beauty and your grace is so great that it intoxicates my mind and my heart. And so we generally use those expressions in a positive way. Paul is not using this expression in a positive way. He's saying it's like someone cast a spell on you. It's like you have descended into madness. It's like you have lost your senses. He is not calling the Galatians ignorant. He's simply saying they are expressing no spiritual discernment at all. Why? What is really the issue? They have forgotten what the gospel is really all about. Notice that here, Paul is telling them that it is madness, it is crazy, it is like being under a spell if you forget Jesus Christ, who was publicly portrayed as crucified. Now, there the language is literally, he was graphically portrayed to you. It's the language of having a sign that you hold up in front of people, and you say, here, here is Jesus the one who is God, who became man, the one who lived a perfect life, and there he is dying the most horrid death imaginable upon a cross. Why? Not because he had any guilt, not because he had ever rebelled against God or man, but because he was bearing the penalty that sin deserved. And so Paul, in his preaching, if it were, painted a picture of Jesus and said, this is the salvation that God provides, Jesus Christ crucified. It is the only way we can be made right with God. And Paul says it's madness, it's folly to ever forget the essence of the gospel. 
The essence of the gospel is Jesus dying for your sins. Now, I said I want us to consider, first of all, that we are all prone to madness. How are we prone to this kind of madness? Don't we sometimes take the beautiful and world-changing story of Jesus for granted? Don't we sometimes almost act as though that is sort of primary school-level Christianity? Don't we sometimes almost talk about the cross of Christ as a, you know, a pun or a cliche? In other words, it's something that doesn't capture our imagination. It doesn't lead to our worship, our awe. Why? Because we're prone to madness. We all can sometimes say, yeah, yeah, Jesus died on the cross, but, and Paul says, as soon as you take that attitude, you have lost your senses. You have descended into folly. There is no departure from the message of Jesus Christ dying on a cross for your sins. He says, that is the good news. How do we do that in practice? Well, we do it by simply not considering it, but we also do it by discounting it as the cause for our position before God. You know, we do it perhaps more in our mind than out of our mouth, but we often think to ourselves, you know, why are we not like, as followers of Jesus, why are we not like people in the world? And oftentimes, we think, well, because I'm a little smarter than most people in the world. Uh, because, uh, you know, I had maybe better parents than other people in the world, uh, because, you know, I've thought through things more than other people in the world, because I learned all the right answers, unlike most people in the world. And when we do that, whether consciously or unconsciously, what we're doing is diminishing the significance of Jesus' crucifixion on our behalf. We are beginning to give ourselves credit for our relationship with God. And Paul says, when you've done that, you have entered into folly, into madness, into idiocy, if we use Phillips. I like that one. You know, when you call someone an idiot, it does wake them up. And I've got to admit, I am prone to that madness. I am prone to soak up a little credit for my standing before God. We are all prone to that madness. Secondly, I want us to see, as we look at this text, our susceptibility to novelty. Now, I don't know whether you've noticed this, but we all like the new. And we particularly like the new and improved, don't we? Right? So, uh, I, I admit this is one of, my, one of my things that I've struggled with for years. I can get a car. I can enjoy that car. I can drive that car. I can enjoy the acceleration I get from hitting the gas pedal in that car. And I can be having a great time until I'm out here on Powers, heading back to the house, and a new model of my car passes me. Does that happen to you? And you're like, ooh, I love that extra bit of chrome on the trim. Or, ooh, I love that matte 
color that they're using, you know, that blue matte color, it doesn't quite reflect things, but it looks deep like you could fall into that blue forever, and you think, I want one of those. Or perhaps you're more ecologically minded, and you're driving down the road, and that car you thought got good gas mileage, 30 miles to the gallon, and right past you goes one of the new Kias that's all electric and all-wheel drive, and you think, hmm, I kind of like that. But we're like that intellectually and spiritually as well. We like the novel. It's not unusual for us to say, have you read the new book by? Have you seen the new article by? And we love someone who comes up with a novel way of saying something or portraying something. And the problem is that sometimes, if not oftentimes, novelty is actually error. You know, I often tell people that what I do is pretty interesting in that every single week I get up and preach the exact same message over and over again. And they say, well, you seem pretty creative. And what I tell them is the problem is in my business, the preaching of God's word, creativity is another word for heresy. (laughs) I'm, I'm pretty much telling the story that's been told for thousands of years. I'm trying to tell it in a way that you'll still listen, that you'll stay awake, but we want something new. And here, the Galatians have heard this new message. They have had people come into town and they said, listen, Paul's right that you are alienated from God because of your sin. And he's right that Jesus did come and he died on a cross. But you have to understand, that's just how you get started. That's like kindergarten spirituality. You need this new understanding of how to add the works that the Old Testament talks about. Now, they wouldn't have called it the Old Testament. They would have called it the law. They would have said, you need to add these certain things, these behaviors, these practices, like circumcision and holy days and kinds of food you eat. And you need to add that so that you can grow up. And they think to themselves, well, that sounds new and interesting. And let's be honest, in our community, the more we look like our Jewish neighbors, the less we're going to get a hard time from people about following Jesus. And that novelty seems interesting, and we are drawn into that. But notice that in this passage, Paul asks question after question. There is many questions in this passage as there are verses. Paul is basically grilling them. Let me ask you, how did you receive? How did you receive Uh, the Spirit, by works of the law, hearing uh, with faith. Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain if it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by the works of the law or by hearing uh, with faith? In other words, question after question, what does he say? He says, I want you to think beyond the novelty of what you've been taught about the truth of the gospel. I want you to think about the truth of the gospel. It might be old. It might be something you heard previous, but you need to think about it. Notice, first of all, he says, I want you to think, how did you receive the Spirit? How did you receive the Spirit? In other words, how did you enter into faith? 
Was it because of all the things you had done, all the things you accomplished, all the things you didn't do? Was it because you said the right things or did the right things? He, the implication is no. No. He says, was it receiving by the word of faith or is it by the works of the law? He knows that they know the answer. And I want us to make sure we know the answer. How do we enter into the Christian life? How do we receive the Spirit of God? It's by hearing with faith. That word receive is a beautiful word. Notice he says, did you get it? Did you, by receiving it or by doing the works of the law? Receiving is a passive action. Receiving is not doing, it's not grasping, it's not striving. It is simply receiving. It is the posture of the one who gets a gift. It is the one who has a benevolence that is bestowed upon them. It is a receiving. Paul, in his letter to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 4 and verse 7, he says it this way, What do you have? that you did not receive. If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Isn't this really the, the kernel of the issue? The novelty came along and said, yes, you have to receive things at the beginning, but then you can grasp them from then on out. Then you are in control of the situation. Yes, you had to passively and gratefully receive the gift of God initially, but now you're in control. You can do it. There's a reason why Nike, 20 years on, is still using that slogan. Because it resonates with us. You can do it. When it comes to your relationship with God, I want you to hear me. You cannot do it. You have to receive it. You cannot do it. You must receive it. That's what Paul is saying. What do you have that you did not receive? And I love what he says there in 1 Corinthians 4, 7. And, then if you, and if you received it, why do you boast like you didn't receive it? Which again, and I'll reiterate this over and over again, it's why a proud Christian is an oxymoron. So the worst insult that anyone could give me or give this church is that we are a proud group of people. Those Presbyterians think they know everything. They might. To be honest, they might. But one thing about them is they know they had nothing to do with their relationship with God. But it was all a gift that they received through His grace. Is that where we are? Paul says, I want you to understand this. It may be old. It may not be novel. But it is essential. And then he turns it around a little bit. First he says, how did you receive? But then later in the text, notice in verse 5, he says, how did God give it to you? Notice verse 5. Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? He turns it around. On the first perspective, he's like, well, how did you receive it? In the second case, he's like, how did God give it? Did God give you the Spirit because of all the things you did to earn it or accomplish it 
or convince him or bribe him? Or did he give it to you simply out of grace and mercy? And of course, they know the answer. God did not allow us to have the Spirit of God, i.e. bring us into relationship with Himself, into the state of being saved. He did not do this because we earned it. He did it because in His grace He wanted to give it. And so He looks at it from both perspectives. So do you have it because God rewarded you or because God was gracious to you? I love it in another part of Paul in Philippians chapter 1. Paul brings this home for the Philippians when he tells them, I am sure of this, verse 6 of chapter 1 of Philippians, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. He who began it will complete it. And this ties in with what Paul is saying. I know, I know the novelty that we're susceptible to is, well, God gave it to me initially, but I am responsible for it from then on out. God started me, but I complete me. But Paul over and over is saying, God started the work, he'll finish the work. It's just that simple. Believe it or not, the Christian life is not about you. I know that is so hard. That is so hard for us. We want it to be about us. We want to write songs where it's about us. We want to make ourselves the center of the universe, don't we? You know, we always do. But what Paul is reiterating is the story is always God's story. The story is always about God's greatness and grace. It's always about his work in and through a bunch of sinners like us. Do you know what our role in the story is? Gracious receiver, humble worshiper. That's our deal. Paul is saying, look, I know it's novel to say you're contributing something to the work that God is doing in your life, but he says you never have and you never can because it's all about God. Now, thirdly, as we think about this novelty, I want us to look more closely at how Paul asked these questions. Notice, he says, did you receive the Spirit? And then later, he says, does he who supplies the Spirit to you? And this helps us understand what's going on here. I think sometimes in church world, we use the word spirit, and we sort of just walk right past it, right? You know, does he give you the spirit? Let's let's just think about what giving you the spirit means. The spirit, of course, is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, God himself. God is giving you himself He is giving you the Spirit. Every single person who receives as a gift the offer of the gospel, God gives himself to in the person of the Holy Spirit. Now, let's just think for a second. If God gives us himself in the person of the Holy Spirit, Is it because we can do it ourselves or because we have no chance of doing it ourselves without him? Think about that. 
Why would he give us the Spirit? Because we cannot do it in our flesh. He must do it in us and through us. And that's why he lives within us and the person of the Holy Spirit. Here in the book of Galatians, it is a remarkable thing how much Paul focuses on the power of the Spirit. But do you see that it's the Spirit that is the antidote for self-will and self-effort? Because when we recognize that God, the Spirit, lives within us, we recognize it's because I have no ability to honor God in and of myself. But the Spirit honors Him in me and through me. Don't we see that in other places? How in the world do I know that God is Father? Because the Spirit causes me to cry, Abba, Father. How do I even know how to pray? Because the Spirit in me prays for me with groanings too great to understand. The Spirit is doing the work in me and through me. And what am I doing? I am receiving the work of God in and through me. This is what Paul is saying. There are not two ways to do the Christian life. The way you start and the way you, you finish or the way you continue. The way you start is faith. The way you continue is by bearing down and trying as hard as you can. Paul says, no. You continue the same way you start. You start with faith. You continue in faith. And, of course, some of you are sitting there and you're thinking about your theology and you're going, wait, 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 wait. I know that theologically speaking, there is a distinction between justification and sanctification. Big words, just, justification is the declaration that you are not a rebel, a sinner, someone under judgment, but a declaration that you are now righteous before God only because of what Christ has done and has been credited to your account. For those of you who are from Reformed heritage, justification is a free act of God's grace, whereby he does pardon us of all our iniquity and accept us as righteous in his sight only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us. I do know it, but I do try to explain it in a way that we can understand. And you say, but isn't that different than sanctification? Sanctification is the process by which we become more like Jesus. But do you know what our confessional statement actually says about that? Sanctification is an act of God's free grace, wherein he continues to transform us more into the image of Christ. Whose work is it? It's God's work. Done through the Spirit. So just in case you think I'm stepping on heresy grounds, I'm not. Is it a process? Yes. But it is a process that God does and that I receive through faith. Just like justification is God's work that I receive through faith. And you say, well, wait a second. Don't I contribute to it? Yes and no. No, in the sense of any of your effort, your merit, your work, Yes, in the sense that you continue to believe in the gospel and trust in it. Tim Keller does a beautiful job whenever he talks about this particular passage. He says, at the root of all of our continuing sin struggles is a failure to believe the gospel. And so he uses it as an analogy 
when we fail to forgive someone. We're having a hard time forgiving someone. We don't want to forgive someone. He says, what is really the issue? Is the issue that I need to bear down and work harder at screwing up the self-will to forgive that person? He says, no. The issue is that I am failing to forgive that person because I am believing that my worth and significance is connected to to what that person perceives of me or what that person did to me. In other words, I am believing another gospel. And I can't forgive them because they're in the way of the thing that I think will give me significance and meaning in my life. And so I bear this grudge against them because they're preventing me from having the fulfillment that I think I deserve. And believing the gospel is saying my only worth. Is because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. That the only thing that gives me significance is God's redeeming love through Christ. And that is what I need to continue to receive. And then forgiveness looks like a much smaller hurdle, doesn't it? Why would I fail to forgive someone? They are not the key to me being right with myself or with God. Jesus is. And so he says, this is how we grow in the gospel. People say, well, that sounds too easy if all I do is continue receiving, you know, the work of God through Christ, administered by the Holy Spirit in me. If all I do, then that seems to say the Christian life is easy. I am here to tell you it is not easy. It is the hardest thing in the world not to add the novelty of your own effort, your work, your merit to what Christ has so perfectly done. It takes daily, many times a day, repentance and faith. For over and over, I'm going to recognize how many times I ignored the instructions of Paul and Galatians, and I think that I began with faith, but I'm continuing through the works of the law. And I have to say, Lord, forgive me for again trying to take control of this situation, of thinking I'm in charge, of thinking it's about me. Forgive me for wanting to be my own Lord and Savior and help me to rest more fully and gladly in the work of Jesus on my behalf. You say, is that really all the Christian life It's about, yeah, that's all. I'll tell you what, for homework, try that this week. Recognize how many times you pat yourself on the back or on the other end of the spectrum, how many times you dog yourself and grind yourself into the dust because of your performance. And every single time, repent that you're trying to be your own savior and see how easy it is. That's why he gave us himself in the spirit because we can't do it without him. Are you trying to do it without him because you think it's novel or brave? Paul says, don't be so foolish. Lastly, and I'm only touching this briefly because we're going to spend a lot of time on it next week, we often have an ignorance of history. Notice in verse 6, the apostle Paul brings up A really old dead dude. Verse 6, just as Abraham believed God 
and it was counted to him as righteousness. Why in the middle of this argument about what a bunch of people in Galatia in probably 50 A.D., why would he bring up a dude who's been dead for thousands of years? Why is he reaching all the way back to Abraham? Doesn't this seem a little out of the blue? And the answer is this. The people who are giving this novel idea to the Galatian Christians that they can actually contribute to what God has started and they continue to become more mature by their own efforts, they are saying that is the way you become a child of Abraham. And Paul wants them to understand how ignorant of history they actually are. You know, Paul, before he became a believer, was an expert in the law. That means he knew what we call the Old Testament backwards and forward. And I'm sure he had heard through his sources, you know what they're doing? They're trying to convince people that to be a true child of Abraham, you need to not just believe in Jesus, but add your own efforts as well. And I can almost imagine the Apostle Paul saying, do they not know what it says? Have they not read it? Are they ignorant of history? Now, I was a history major, so I am not completely ignorant of history. And I have a friend who every single day sends me an email with some interesting tidbit about the history of that particular day or holiday, as the case may be, and I'm very thankful for that. But do we remember the history of how God intervenes in the lives of people? Because here, Paul is going all the way back to Genesis in chapter 15, And there, Abraham, who was just called Abram at the time, is having a crisis of faith. You see, God, back in chapter 12, which we'll get into a lot more next week, has promised Abraham that he would become a great nation, that he would have a great people, that he would be given a great land, and that he would bless all of the nations of the earth through him. We'll talk about that next week. Only one problem. Abraham has no kid. And it's pretty hard to think about how you're going to have this giant, giant family that's going to change the world when you don't have a single child. And so Abraham, or Abram, as he's called in Genesis chapter 15, he's struggling with how this is going to work out. He knows God has promised it. He has believed the promise of God. But he says, listen, Lord, I'm paraphrasing the beginning of chapter 15. Right now, as it stands, this guy named Eleazar, who's just a member of my household, he's going to get all my stuff. He's going to be the guy who, you know, basically gets everything in the last will and testament. And and I know you've made all these promises, but I, I got no kid. And here's what God does. God takes him outside. And back then you could actually see the stars. And he says, look, I want you to start counting. Count the stars. And of course, for those of you who work with satellites, you know, you can't count the stars. And so basically, he's like, I can't count the stars. It's an infinite number of stars. And he said, that's what your descendants will be. God reiterates the promise. And so Abraham believes God. He doesn't know how it's going to work out. He doesn't have the blueprint, but he believes God. And in Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, it says, He believed the Lord, and he, that's the Lord, counted it to him as righteousness. 
Paul, let's just stick with this and we're going to be done. We cannot forget that the way God has always worked with people is that they are right before him, not because of what they do, but because God counts them as righteous. That all we do is receive it. Abraham didn't do anything. He just received the promise of God. He says, God, I take you at your word. I receive that, even though I don't know how it's going to work. Paul says, don't be ignorant of history. This is not a new thing in what we call the New Testament. It's not a new thing in Paul's teaching in Galatia. It's not a new thing in 2022. God has always called people righteous or right with him because they've received his word with faith. Why then are we so foolish to keep trying alternate means of being right with God? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you and thank you that you give us your word. Lord, we are the foolish Colorado Springs people because we so often forget the essential nature of Jesus Christ crucified for our sins. We are prone to novelty, as people come up with some new, thinly-veiled way for us to take charge of our spiritual maturity by our mental, physical, or emotional effort. But that's not how we became your kids. It's not how you gave us your spirit. It was simply receiving. Lord, help us be quick to see, repent, and believe. And Lord, help us not forget that there never has been nor ever will be another way for us to enjoy peace with you but by receiving what you offer by faith. Lord, help us, we ask, through the power of the Spirit in us and in the name of our sweet and wonderful Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.